Welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host. Firm, but with little give. Yep, these are medium rare. What if somebody wants theirs well done? We ask them politely yet firmly to leave. Michael Preston. Back here again on the Kook Center Hour, preview number two of five before we even start football because y'all wanted the Kook Center Hour back so bad and it came back super I don't know why I did that. Why the hell did I just talk like Zach Galifianakis getting kicked in the nuts in the hangover? I'm on a tangent again about the hangover. It has been two shows, and I'm only like 20 seconds in, and I can't stay on topic. This is the most typical thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Welcome to the Kook Center Hour. I am your faithful host, Michael Preston. Our own Britton Ransford is going to be here later on. We are going to talk about recruiting, which has been, well, lit. Lately, to be frank, and it has been good and excellent and doesn't really show a sign of uh, of slowing down, which is just, you know, just kind of what happens when you go to the Sun Bowl and you beat Miami. We'll talk a little bit more about college football as well at the end, plus, as always, our Dunder Head of the Week and Ask Michael Anything. I want to talk first, though, uh, this week about something that... You know, it's on everybody's mind this time of year because WSU opened camp last Saturday. A lot of Pac-12 teams opened camp on Monday or are opening it this week at some point. And it's all about kind of something we talked about in spring and something I wrote about in spring. It's about managing those expectations, managing how you feel about everything, managing how you're not getting too up or too down. And I am guilt. I'm as guilty of it as anybody is. I'm as guilty as anybody. I do it all the friggin' time. I get up when, you know, I, I watched WSU put on an Instagram video of Peyton Palour and Gerard Wicks doing Bull in the Ring on Monday, and I got so overly excited that those two were that strong, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, project, oh my God, Gerard Wicks can run anybody over, and Peyton Palour can tackle anybody, blah, blah, blah. It's Bull in the Ring. Don't get so excited, Preston. And it, it, it's kind of the same thing. I kind of say to everybody this time of the year, don't get too up or too down in either direction about anything you hear. When Tyler Holinsky has a bad day on Saturday then has a good day on Sunday, that doesn't really mean too much. If Luke Falk throws a couple interceptions in camp, it means he throws a couple interceptions in camp. Luke Falk's a guy that you probably don't really have to worry about doing too much. He's one of those, you know, he's like Marshawn Lynch when he was still playing. Doesn't practice all week, practices on Thursday a little bit, then a little on Friday, runs his ass off on Sunday, and then takes most of the rest of the week off till they need to play again. It's about managing these expectations, I think, that you have. And it's, you, you know, I, I see a lot of people angry about where UW is in the national polls. And, it's, you know, and I, I agree. It's at this point in the season, you take a 7-6 and six team and put them up there. That's probably a little too much. But they get the benefit of being in a big market and historically being a team that has been important relatively uh, in historic terms, but it's been a while since they've been important at all. So again, it's constantly putting those teams on the pedestal and managing these expectations. And with WSU fans, these expectations of a 10-win season, even in the regular season, it's you know I can sit here and kind of expect that or say I expect it, but you need to manage these expectations, especially in fall camp, because like we said earlier in the week, it, it's it's that bingo game. Who's going to be in the best shape of their life? Who does Mike Leach think worked harder than anybody in the offseason? Who does Mike Leach think could be could step up and explode for WSU this season? You know, who does who do the defensive coaches think is going to step up and how big of a season is player X going to have and all these other things. They're just boilerplate stories you hear in training camp for every single friggin' sport on the planet. This is not germane unique to just college football. It's not even unique to college athletics. It happens in spring training every year. Somebody, Jesus Montero loses a crap load of weight for the Mariners. Still can't hit the ball, but he loses a crap load of weight. Best weight, you know, best shape he's ever been in in his life. During NFL training camp, happens every single freaking year. Best shape of his life. Best shape of his life. No reason that you know. No reason we can't win. You know, we can't get to the Super Bowl again. No reason we can't win the Pac-12. No reason we can't get to the World Series. You hear it every single friggin' year. 
And yet every single friggin' year in every single friggin' sport, there's like three or four teams that you just know are the ones that have the realistic chance at winning. I mean, it just you just know that about each sport. College football is not an outlier. We know going into the season that Alabama, that Clemson, that Ohio State, that Michigan, that Oklahoma, that these teams are the ones we're expecting to see at the end of the season. These are the teams we're expecting to see battling for the national championship at the end of the year. You just you just know that going into the year. But it is a little different in the Pac-12 in that we don't really know who we expect to win the Pac-12 North. And again, I'll, I'll ride the Stanford pony until they throw me off. Because until David Shaw proves me wrong, I'm going to assume that David Shaw really, you know, I mean, he's already proven it, but that David Shaw really knows what he's doing down in Palo Alto. It's, it's the same in any sport. These expectations, fan expectations, just have to be managed. And you're allowed to be irrational if you want to be because, you know, you're, be, you're, you're a fan. I'm a fan, too. I'm not a reporter that covers the team at all. I'm a fan, too. I'm allowed to be irrational. But I think there's such a thing as managing your expectations for how this football team should be, how good they should be. Should they be as good as last year? I don't think that's unreasonable. Eight wins in the schedule they have is not an unreasonable expectation for this football team. I don't think it is at all. Are they going to be better than next year? Yeah, maybe. Depends on how they do against Boise State. That's kind of a big test. And again, like we talked about last week, those first two conference games. You're going to find out a lot about this team before the season's even half over. You're going to find out about where they are and where they're going to end up before we even get halfway through, before they even can play UCLA for homecoming. You're going to know a lot about this football team. Those expectations of this team continuing to get better, I don't think are unreasonable, but it's managing them. Reading these daily, daily practice reports from from Jacob Thorpe, from Stephanie Lowe, from everybody who is at practice, from Matt Chazanow, from Coog Fan, from everybody. Managing your expectations that you don't get too down when you hear the defense has a crappy day and you don't get too up when you hear Luke Falk shredded them. It goes back to what we said in the spring. you got to consider who they are playing against. They're playing against each other. So when James Williams shakes somebody out of their boots for a touchdown, that's great for James Williams. It's bad for Shalom Luwani, who just got left crossed over and everybody in the neighborhood laughing at him. And I, I know that there's that, you know, a big pushback, at least in this fan base, of, of UW being ranked so highly. And again... Don't be reading into, if you if you are reading their practice reports, don't get it too into what anybody says about anything. You know that defense is good. You know the offense needs to improve an awful lot. At Oregon, you know the defense is a big question mark and they don't have DeForest Buckner anymore. They don't even have their best player anymore. You know Dakota Prukop needs to come in and almost be Vernon Adams. Royce Freeman's going to help him. Devin Allen's going to help him. Devin Allen's in freaking Rio. You know all of that about Oregon. But you also know that, you know, if they have injury problems like they did last year, that Taylor Alley's not the guy. We know all of these things. Stanford, you know they need to replace their quarterback, but you also know that defensively they're going to be good again. Cal got Davis Webb. Eligible right away, but you also know that they lost basically every receiver on that football team. Like, every one of them. And that defense still probably not very good. Oregon State is, again, still recovering. It's about managing these expectations and managing where you think this team should be, where they're going, and not getting too up or too down with these reports. It's something I got to remind myself of every day when I'm reading them. Just because Tyler Halinski threw three interceptions in a team, you know, session doesn't mean he's going to be a bad quarterback. And I I don't know if he did or not, but that's just a for example. You know, just because River Craycraft dropped two passes again, for example, doesn't mean he's going to be, you know, dropping passes all over the place. 
you you have so many practices in a row, so many days in a row that you're practicing. This will be the hardest thing these guys go through all year, even compared to game weeks, because they're practicing basically every single day, and they're doing it in Lewiston in the heat. It's hot down there. Hot, 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 hot in Lewiston. This is a time to iron everything out and to go into the season more polished than you were last year. You were coming off a 3-9 and nine year last year when you went into that Portland State game. And again, you know, that confluence of factors going against you, the, the weather, everything else, you lost that football game. There's no reason you shouldn't go into this game against Eastern this year. A team also in the FCS in the same division as Portland State and just whack the ever-loving crap out of them. There's no reason you shouldn't be able to do that. And managing your expectations better and being more polished than you were last year coming off a 3-9 and nine season. You're now coming off a 9-4 and four season. There is a definite or should be a definite difference in how you prepare and how polished you are. The bowl game, I, you know, we'll talk about this later on as we get closer to the season, but the bowl game is an absolute minimum expectation for me. Anything less than that is this season was not a success. And I could even make the case that at 6-6, six 7-5 and six, seven and five and going to a bowl similar to the New Mexico Bowl again, or what the hell was that one UW ended up like the heart of Dallas Bowl or some crap? Going to another bowl like that is also not a good season. And it feels weird that, again, we talked about expectations. We've been talking about expectations for over 10 minutes, but that that is the expectation this year. And it's the expectation we've had, the first one we've had like that in a long time, that felt legit, that felt like a, a legitimate failure is a low bowl game. Like at bare, bare minimum, it's the Vegas Bowl. That's the bare minimum this year. And it kind of feels good to say that. But at the same time, to not get yourself caught up in what goes on day to day at fall camp. Because you just, you're going to lose your mind if, if, if you keep following it this closely. And it's just going to drive you nuts. Trust me, it drives me nuts. I've already rambled on and gone back and forth so much on every point. Probably made about 15 different contradictory points. Brent Ransford's here next. He's not going to make any contradictory points. Here's the point. WSU's recruiting is off the friggin' chain right now. That, that's that's the big point. So Britain's up next. We're going to talk about some WSU recruiting here on the Cook Center app. Back here on the Coog Center Hour, we just got done talking about expectations and not getting out, you know, too far out over your skis and getting too excited about things. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get you too excited about things and get you out over your skis with Britton Ransford, our recruiting guy at Coog Center. I mean, the, the dude knows recruiting like like I know burritos. So, uh, Britton, I mean, I, I I've been I just preach for 12 minutes. Don't get too far out over your skis about being excited about fall football. And right now we're about to tell everybody that it's probably okay to do that with this recruiting class, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to be excited about 17-year-olds. <laughs> you know, normally in a lot of places that can catch you a felony charge, but here on the Kook Center Hour, it's not going to do that. That's for sure. Nope. Um, I, I just nope. want to talk about this class overall, Britain, because I think when I, when I look at it up and down, uh, you got 15 commits already in this class, and their senior football season hasn't even started for these guys uh, in high school. And when I look up and down this list, what I see probably more in this class than I've seen in any other under Mike Leach is just the pure athleticism from top to bottom in all of these guys. Yeah, you know, they're looking for a particular kind of athlete, and um, you'll see that some of the guys on the defensive side um, might not have the size yet or even along the offensive line, but the guys that they know they can just kind of mold and build. And you've looked at the depth that they're building um, just this fall camp already uh, so they can afford to bring these guys in and kind of develop them. That's kind of what they're looking to get towards um, since they got here and they're finally there. 
Um, it, it's just there's a lot of talent there. I mean, there's some guys that might be projects, but there's a lot of guys that, you know, you're seeing um, so far in this fall camp. Um, Desmond Patman and Isaiah Johnson and um, Grant Porter all, you know, kind of jumping in there and getting right at it. And there's some guys that are going to do that in this class too. But um, it, it's a it's a class full of speed, um, a lot of size, and uh, just uh, it's continually becoming um, a higher caliber of athlete coming to uh, Washington State. And it's still early, and um, this class is obviously mm-hmm. going to um, lose some and gain some. Um, but right now, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty exciting class. Um, it's pretty up there in the rankings. They're just hovering around like 30, 40, mm-hmm. um, and which is the, probably what they're going to be at um, always, um, but yeah. already up there um, in ranking systems that, you know, rank you by numbers once you get up to 20, and then you, you start looking at stars and that kind of different rating stuff. But it's a cool class and uh, a lot of um, athletes, like you said. Mm-hmm. When we look at kind of the difference that there's been from years past Britain to this year, is there a different thing that the coaches are kind of selling these guys on, a different thing they're talking to them about, or is it just kind of that momentum from winning the Sun Bowl and all that other good stuff? Because we, I think we talked about last year, you don't really quite see that momentum from a really good season until the recruiting class that comes after it, right? You know, 2016 was a pretty decent recruiting class, but you don't really see the momentum picking up until this one. Is it partially that, or is that message that these coaches are saying just getting better and getting to these recruits a little more clearly? I think it's more your second point. I mean, I really don't think they're changing their approach to recruiting. They're saying the same kind of stuff. You're always going to have an opportunity to come play as a freshman. Um, they still play a bunch of young guys. That's always going to be a selling point. The uh, the selling point of, you know, the, the new football operations building and all the facility stuff is still there, but everyone's got those now. So you kind of got to um, go about things a little different um, in that sense. But you, you look at the new guys they brought in, um, the Roy Mannings, the the <clears throat> Jamarcus Shepherd, um, those guys are, you know, guys that like to get after on the recruiting trail. And then the job that Eric Maley's done, um, in the Northwest coming up here and um, really establishing um, a recruiting presence in the state was mm-hmm. something that has kind of lacked in past years. Not It hasn't been um, something that's really hindered them, but uh, it, it's that definitely helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're looking at this class in general. Um, I don't think they're doing anything different um, to bring them up here. It's more of a them having the year, the extra year to recruit them, like you said. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at that nine-win season and everyone's kind of expecting this class to finish really strong. It didn't finish extremely strong, but um, we kind of expected that. Um, just these things are built two years. Recruiting classes take about two years. Yeah. So now you're seeing that nine-win season. The recruits that they were recruiting in the 2017 class during the 2016 cycle, um, we're seeing that. Um, as they were getting ready to get into the recruiting deal. So the, the this last class, I mean, they saw a three and nine season right before then, and so it was a, a little different. Um, but it's, it's a multitude of factors, and um, I think it has something to do with the, the new coaches that they got on the recruiting trail. I think Grinch done a good job, um, too, down in San Diego. You saw they brought four guys out of there last year. Mm-hmm. So um, they've done a pretty good job, and I don't think it's much that they're changing anything. I think it's just the, the overall a view of the program is a lot better than it was in the past. I want to touch on something you talked about a little bit in there, and it kind of will go into my next question is, you know, we saw a little bit more recruiting inside of the state of Washington. And I think the thing WSU fans have always heard is that, you know, you dubbed, you know, it's just kind of, you're going to lose recruits to UW in the state of Washington. You're never going to recruit very well in the state of Washington. I guess my observation over the years has been that even Washington can't keep the blue chip recruits really that are in this state in the state, like Zach Banner and guys like Miles Jack, even they have a hard time doing it, and there aren't a ton of FBS athletes coming out of high school in Washington. Is is it really that tremendously important for WSU to try to battle with Washington for a lot of these kids in the state, or can they afford to focus elsewhere to get the kind of athletes that they want to run in Mike Leach and Alex Grinch's system? Well, I don't, I don't think that there's any set number they want to bring out of the state. I think they always want to take a couple kids um, from in the state. It's, it's good for the, the program as a whole, um, and, and they've done so. I mean, you look at the offensive line. you got a right tackle, uh, Cole Madison, that was a tight end in high school. you got Andre Dillard, who was just an undersized lineman in high school, and then mm-hmm. you got Cody O'Connell, who's just been a massive um, – he was just a big body that was under-recruited. He has three guys on a, a really good offensive line from in the state, um, and then you're seeing – 
there's a lot more now. Um, it, there's plenty of athletes here, and we've talked about it um, a little bit on um, our Slack board. <clears throat> a lot. There's another. There's a chance that they have the number one kid in the class again next year. Um, they might have the number one kid in, in this entire recruiting class, Foster Serrell, um, an offensive lineman at a Grand Capowson. Um, he might be the best player in this class. Um, then last year at Jacob Eason. I mean, the state has these big, high-caliber guys, but they're leaving. Um, yeah. And then going up, I, th- I think you're wasting resources going up against those top guys um, on the west side. To uh, it, they're going to recruit them until they kind of get the sense that you know they're they're not going to be there. But those guys, I mean, those are always going to be more UWing guys. Um, it, it, WSU just hasn't really had that presence over there long enough. So they're going to go wherever they can get these these guys they want in their system and they're still looking for they're still looking for just that body type that that caliber of player and mm-hmm. whether it's in florida or whether it's in southern california or texas or they go to uh, pago pago um it, i don't think they have a set number of kids they want from each area it's just um who wants to come up and be a coog yeah I want to get into our next question. You mentioned it a little bit there. There seems to be a little bit of a Florida pipeline working right now for WSU. We kind of saw that with Paul Wolf. They had a few Florida uh, commits and kids who made it to the team. But right now you've got three guys in this recruiting class who are from Florida, most notably Anthony White Jr., who committed last week, the wide receiver uh, from Miami Central. Uh, Is this just kind of a new area that WSU is opening up? Because it is kind of one of those talent-rich areas that we talk about all the time, like Southern California, like Texas. There are a lot of really good football players in Florida, and it might you know be something where you're not going to compete with the big schools in that area for these guys, but it's nice to go in there and get a few good athletes out of an area that produces a lot of Division One talent. Yeah, I mean, not all of them can go to Florida State, Florida, and um, all those Southeast schools. And so um, you have that little kind of connection. I, I think Jamarcus Shepard has some connections down there from um, his previous stops. And then um, Dave Nickel was in that kind of area down there, too. And mm-hmm. so you have a little bit more connection down there and that might play into it a little bit, but again, they're just kind of evaluating the film and trying to find athletes that want to come up here. Um, they're not going to spend a lot of time on a kid um, recruiting them really hard if they don't show legit interest back when they're that far away. Um, but these kids um, that they pulled out of here or in Florida um, are all kids that, you know, have no problems with going away from home. They're not afraid to, you know, take, <clears throat> pack up everything and go across. I mean, literally as far away as you can in the United States, yeah. Um, and then Stan, I mean, Pullman in, in Florida are a little different, you know, so, um, they're, they're recruiting kids, um, that really want to be here. And, uh, mm-hmm. that happens to be three down in Florida. Um, it helps with the connections, but, um, they've, they've taken about one kid. It seems like every single year out of there, this year is one of those years that, um, they've found a, a quite a few down there. Um, the Zare Webb, um, he kind of has a connection, uh, from Southern California. He was mm-hmm. down in the um, Inland Empire down there where uh, Coach Wilson was recruiting him, and um, they just stayed on him when he moved over there to, to Fletcher High School there and uh, wherever the hell that's at. And uh, But you look at that they, they offered that Anthony White kid about seven, like a week before he committed here. So mm-hmm. um, they, they probably were on him um, for a few days before offering, and then um, really got on him and talked to him and found out that he really wanted to be up there, really loved Mike Leach's offense, pulled the trigger on an offer, and now that he's got a teammate that's another four-star receiver that's uh, taking a look at the Cougs too. So, they, um, yeah, they're doing really good down there. Um, but it, it's some of those connections and um, just really finding guys that want to be part of the program and they, they happen to be out of Florida. I don't think – I think Pipeline's a little little much for um, – called Florida pipeline because I don't think it's going to be a, a right. thing they pull a bunch of kids out every year, but um, it's been pretty cool. And I mean, there's a lot of leftovers that don't go to those big schools down there that are very good um, mm-hmm. division one college football players. So um, if they fit the system, uh, they're going to recruit them. Fletcher is in Neptune beach, Florida, a much better oh, yeah, location, obviously. I assume than Uranus beach, which is right next to it. So I assume it's just a better place to be. Um, yeah, one area, yeah, where, you know, I'm, I'm 12 years old. One area where we just talked about Anthony White Jr. Britain, and it kind of seems they they're hitting the athleticism hard in this class. Is it wide receiver? You have Isaiah Hodgins, uh, who committed earlier this year as well. And you have your boy, Tykez, Tykez, Tykez. Hampton. 
uh, out of El Paso. I mean, all of these guys over six feet tall, all of these guys with a body that can put on some weight, all of these guys are overly athletic. I, this this is just kind of their M.O. They're recruiting wide receivers, obviously, for this system, but does it seem like they're getting more athletic guys in this class maybe than previous, or is this just about what they're doing every year? It does seem like, I mean, last two classes at least, that they're, they're really targeting those big, you know, six two six three guys that can run um, that can run with the best of them. Um, I think Isaiah Hodgins is obviously the prize of this class right now. He's got offers from all over the place. Um, Oregon offered, and he's just continually said, no, I'm staying with WSU, and it's part of the relationship that they've built as a recruiting class and with the <clears throat> the coaches. But, yeah, um, you look at Ty Kez, too. I mean, that guy's a beast. He's like 6'2", 6'3", runs um, a 10-something, 10, 10, low 10-100-yard 10, dash, and um, four five forty legit four five forty. Um, you look at Anthony White, another um, decently sized receiver that's that's just lightning quick. Um, I I think that they are targeting these bigger receivers, and um, they've targeted them in the past. They just weren't able to get that caliber of athlete up to Pullman yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's starting to all fall together. One area that I think a lot of folks will be happy with in this class is last year you didn't get a quarterback in it. This year you do have one right now in Connor Neville out of Wilsonville, mm-hmm. Oregon, uh, listed as pro style by 24-7, and the kid seems to have a lot of these intangibles. If I recall correctly, went to the uh, the opening or another uh, pretty prestigious offseason camp. Uh, this is kind of, again, we're talking about MOs. This is Mike Leach's MO. You want a quarterback in each and every class. And Connor Neville, a guy who can come in and with by the time he's off his red shirt, uh, you'll you'll have, um, oh my goodness, I'm totally blanking on the backup quarterback's name right now, and it is absolutely killing me. Uh, Luke Falk's backup is Tyler Holinsky. Oh, Tyler by the time, Holinsky. yeah, by the time Tyler Holinsky uh, gets to his redshirt junior year, uh, Connor Neville will be a redshirt freshman. So a guy who might be able to take a little advantage. What do they see uh, in Connor Neville that they really like uh, right now at three stars on twenty four seven? But even that could get bumped up when these kids get evaluated later in the fall. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a four star French four star guy basically everywhere. Um, he's a, a guy that just is deadly accurate. Um, it throws a beautiful ball. Uh, his, his throwing motion's all there. He has, he basically checks off most of the the boxes that Mike Leach looks for in a quarterback. And he talked about it um, to uh, who was it? Jacob Thorpe yesterday about what he's looking for in quarterbacks. And um, I think uh, Neville really covers the bases of the footwork and um, his release and and really just the accuracy. That's what he's looking for most is the accuracy. And um, Connor Neville's one of the most accurate quarterbacks on the West Coast, if not the nation. And, um, he, you mentioned uh, the opening. He, he was close to the opening. He uh, um, showed out really well in the, the Oakland Regional and then did really well in the Seattle Regional. Um, just missed the cut for the Elite 11. That's right. Thank um, you. But, I mean, he's he's one of those top 15 quarterbacks in the country that uh, has really become everything they want out of a quarterback in a recruiting class, um, commit early, and then kind of take the reins of the recruiting class, help out with recruiting. Um, that's kind of like what Tyler Holinsky did when they uh, got him to commit a couple Aprils ago, and uh, he really helped out with recruiting down there in Southern California. And um, there's a bunch of kids out of Oregon this year that um, Connor Neville's helping out on. And then you just look at these kids on social media; he's the one jumping in there every mm-hmm. time someone commits and saying, "Hey, welcome to the family." And then I mean, everyone's doing that. It's uh, yeah, it's a pretty cool recruiting class to follow on social media. If you're a weird guy that likes to follow kids on social media, so. Um, <laughs> Actually, I did. I wanted yeah. to talk about that at least a little bit. I know, I know, we don't usually encourage you know you to go follow. We I don't ever tweet at recruits. Don't do that. Don't tweet well, the at NCAA, them. But, the NCAA is making it easy now. Well, no, I know they are now, but uh, because at least I I am a booster, a very small booster, so not a good idea to do that. But even yeah, the NCAA, now you can slide into recruits DMs and it's fine. But these guys are all on social media, always talking to each other, always talking to guys who the coaching staff is recruiting or when they get when they do commit finally, it just kind of seems like they're already I mean, these guys are 17 years old, but they're already kind of building up this freshman class family a little bit. We haven't really seen that with a recruiting class in this in, you know, the heavy Twitter era of seeing recruits on Twitter. We haven't seen that yet from any class, have we? Well, you started to see – we talked about it at the end of the the year last year. We started Mm -hmm. to see that, um, talked about a little bit how uh, that locker room vibe was starting to kind of get down in the recruiting class and how 
um, talking family, 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 and uh, you started to see it. But then, I mean, it, it blew up this year. I mean, every single kid in the class is on there talking, talking about family. You know, some other kid posts uh, a picture of another school. They all jump on him and say, hey, no, what are you doing? You're a kook. And someone writes an article that says, hey, is this Oregon offer going to um, sway Hodgins' decision? And uh, they all jump on there and say, no, no, it's not. He's a coog. He's going to be a coog. And um, it, it's something that I think I'm sure the uh, coaching staff is very proud of um, recruiting guys that mm-hmm. are committed and in and uh, really want to help build something up here. Um, but it's also cool to see them. I mean, they, most of them never met each other. There's a few that have um, ran into each other on the, the camp circuit, but um, really developed in that that uh, that bond early. You look mm-hmm. at Ty Kez was all over um, Charles Watson out of Hawaii um, from the time they got offers. And um, the two kids that, I mean, completely different, one's in Texas, El Paso, Texas, and one's in Hawaii, and um, they're recruiting each other uh, on social media. And so, yeah, it seems like the class is really close. And, um Cross your fingers that it uh, stays that way for you know the next six seven months until uh, they actually sign the the piece of paper. But yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a good uh, little start to this recruiting class. You look at the numbers already. You got 15 guys. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about it a little earlier. It's uh, they, they were sitting around six seven eight this time last year. Um, you almost got a full offensive line recruiting class already. Um, yeah, I just kind of kind of fill uh, the rest with a bunch of athletes. Um, I think they like where they're at. Um, the the recruiting rankings like where they're at, and uh, yeah, it's been a a cool little start to the recruiting class. One more question for Britton before we let him go: Is there anywhere that you think that the coaches really want to kind of increase what they're taking here in this class? I know the worry is always it's been the last couple of years, maybe the lack of guys on the defensive line. You do have three defensive linemen in this class, including Lamonte McDougal, who is a defensive tackle already, six one, two hundred and ninety five pounds. He's already a big boy. Uh, is there anywhere that they're maybe wanting to fill in a little bit more than they already have? Or is it now, like you said, just kind of let's take the best athletes at any position we can and we'll go from there? Well, I think they're going to try to focus on the lines, obviously. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see them taking, you know, another offensive lineman or two. Um, and then obviously looking for some kind of uh, – one of the harder positions to recruit is the interior defensive line. Um, there's just not a lot of big ready bodies in there that are mm-hmm. athletic and bodies that you can mold and put a bunch of uh, weight on. Um, Lamonte McDougal is a good one, but I think they'd probably like another one, um, especially after, you know, not taking one again last year and then um, looking at this depth chart currently and your uh, injury inside away from some serious trouble up the middle. So yeah. um, obviously the lines are going to be a priority. Um, I think they'd like to take a, a few receivers in this class um, where they got three right now. Um, they'll probably want to take uh, maybe one or two more. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to take a full class this year, a full 25. Uh, they might. I, I don't know how the numbers work. It's all just, you know Chinese to me. Right. But uh, it, it, I, I would assume they're going to be close to that number. Maybe they take 25, maybe they don't. But uh, you, you look at you have about seven, eight spots left. Um, you have to worry about maybe an academic here and uh, a flip there. But uh, – they're going to recruit at, uh, like basically their whole board up until um, it gets time to really deciding what they're going to do with this class. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, they definitely need to get after some linebackers. Yeah, um, that's always going to be a priority. I'd, do we have a linebacker committed yet? I don't see one. I don't have anything yet, no. in front of me. Mm-mm. No. So um, I think working on that uh, first and second uh, tier of the defense, and then. Um, yeah, I mean they're covering all their bases on the offensive side. They got the running back and they got the quarterback and they got three good receivers and they feel the whole offensive line. So really filling out that defense and they got quite a few DBs already. Um, maybe another safety. Uh, just basically, so basically everywhere. Mm-hmm. Our recruiting guru Britton Ransford joining us as usual, and we're hoping for not the decimation that we saw a couple of years ago with this class, but. Right now looks pretty good uh, for WSU in 2017. When we come back, more Kook Center Hour, and then Dunderhead of the Week and Ask Michael Anything on the Kook Center Hour. That's a great hour.
Back here on the Coog Center Hour, and I said we would talk a little bit more uh, about football in the opening once we got done visiting with Britton Ransford, who as always is a wonderful guest here to have on the program. Uh, and I mean, we're going to talk about it a little differently. And I, you know, I talked about in the opening that you know not letting your expectations get out of whack with fall football and all that good jazz. And I think this week we had that put in really good perspective for us. Really, really good perspective. We'll start a little shorter one with uh, George Yarno passing away. He was an offensive line coach uh, at WSU on two separate occasions, uh, once from 1991 to 1994, uh, and then again from uh, the time that Bill Doba uh, was hired after Mike Price uh, temporarily left for Alabama anyway and uh, was there until... Doba, you know, quote unquote, resigned in 2007. Uh, had played at WSU for four years, played to Tampa Bay, then coached with Tampa Bay, and a lot of players who were saddened to see him go. And a passionate guy. And I, I didn't start covering the team really extensively until the year after uh, Bill Doba was uh, let go and Paul Wolf was hired. So I guess you can blame that on me. Uh, but every very brief kind of like look you had at that guy was that he was an intense but fair coach and that was a guy who, like Alex Brinks said, cared about everybody who was out there. Um, and you, it always stinks to lose a guy like that who was really one of your good coaches and a guy who that a lot of players looked up to and admired. I think players will typically speak well about any coach um, you know, who uh, who they played for. Just, you know, you don't want to ever speak ill of the dead. Uh, but when a guy like Alex Brain, Kamza Abdullah, and Brandon Gibson, who did not play, obviously, offensive line. I mean, Alex Brink was protected by those guys. But when they're going to speak well about him, that lets you know that uh, he had an impact on you. And so from that standpoint, uh, it's always hard to lose a guy who uh, was just 58 years old and uh, died on Monday after fighting stage 4 stomach cancer. Uh, so all the best, and uh, we wish his family uh, every you know all the best right now. Um, another thing I, I want to talk about, and it, it, it kind of gets back to a topic I've brought up a couple of times on this show, is that you know you know what we're doing here, kind of you know it, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. If Washington State loses at the end of the week on Saturday. My week is not ruined. My life, unless I put a lot of money on the game, which you shouldn't be doing anyway, uh, is not affected. My life generally is not affected by how good or bad my college football team is. Other things affect how good or bad uh, my life is. And we got a, I got a really good reminder of that on Monday night when Jacob Thorpe posted... What was A, a brilliantly written and wonderfully written article, and you should read it if you haven't, but that Riley Sorensen had been suffering from testicular cancer before training camp started and did not know until just a few days before if he would be able to play this year. And so don't even focus on it from the standpoint of, oh God, what would happen if the guy who anchors your offensive line can't play? Focus on it from the standpoint of a guy who lost his father who had a heart attack right before they played in the Sun Bowl and passed away a few days later, and then who lost his mother earlier this year while she was fighting cancer while that game was going on, if I'm remembering correctly from reading Jacob's article. She died earlier this year, and then just days later, he was fighting testicular cancer. And he somehow still wants to pull a jersey on and play for Washington State. When he sent that tweet out, in June, about it all being about family and all the coaches at his house, we all thought that it was just about his mother passing away. I don't want to say just about, insinuating that it, you know, that somehow is not, you know, important or whatever. I, I, what I mean is that we thought that that was what it was about and that it was a wonderful enough gesture as it is for all the coaches to show up at his home in a trying time in this poor kid's life when he had just lost his father and he had just lost his mother. But now we know that he had been diagnosed with testicular cancer. I, I mean, I just this summer has brought on perspective in my life and to get philosophical briefly for a moment that my problems are not anything 
in comparison to what these people are. You're allowed to complain about your problems. You're allowed to bemoan your problems. But sometimes it does take putting them in proper perspective for you to truly understand that your problems are not, you know, yeah, they're problems, but they're not. Riley Sorensen lost both of his parents and he had cancer. And he didn't know if he would continue to have the one thing that really gave him an escape from the pain of having to deal with that. He didn't know if he was going to be able to do that. It took seeing specialists to be able to tell him in multiple opinions that, look, you do not need chemotherapy for this. I mean, I, 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 what, do you, what do you even do with a kid who, for all intents and purposes, I would never blame if he didn't want to take another snap of the football after everything he's gone through in the last eight months. Would never, ever blame him. Because he has gone through more in, in just the last, less than a year. He's gone through more in less than a year than some of us go through in a lifetime. And and I would I would never ever think anything less of him if he didn't want to be over a football again. Never. But somehow this kid has the fortitude and the perseverance and the attitude that no, I'm going to continue to push forward. I'm going to continue to play football for Washington State University. I'm going to continue to put on a jersey every Saturday and play football for the Cougars. I, I, I can't wrap my head around what it takes mentally to do that. How strong you have to be mentally to do that for someone who is 21, 22 years old. Who is not a fully developed adult yet by all standards of psychology and whatever else you want to call it, how that person has that attitude, I, I, I do not know. But I do know one thing. And it is that I would, at this point, if I knew the kid personally, I don't, but that I would run through a damn brick wall for him. What he has gone through, not even in a year. And he still wants to play football. And whether it's you know it's a coping mechanism, whatever, I don't care. But the fact that he can still be focused at all on his schoolwork, on football, on his friends, on everybody else. That he can still do that is nothing short of remarkable. This young man who is showing you what it means to be a strong individual. If any one of us broke down after all of that, I could not blame anybody. And again, like I said, I could not blame him if he never wanted to play football again. It would happen to any single one of us. But he is not letting that happen. And I I, I want to try and force myself I want to try and force you I want to try and emphasize to everybody each time you watch Washington State play this fall each and every single time you watch them play whether it's 12 times whether it's 13 times whether it's 14 times whether it's 15 times that th- what this kid has gone through to get to this point And remember that at the end of all of that, he still wants to play football for your institution. He still wants to go out there and play football for the school you love and for the school you support. I don't know a greater gesture of love and respect in the world than for not only for him to go through all of that, but at the end of it to continue to be unselfish and go out there and play for everybody else. He's playing for himself a little bit, but the unselfish attitude to go out there and put it all on the line again after everything you have gone through is just the most remarkable attitude I have ever seen in a human being. 
And maybe there have been greater examples of it. I don't know. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But this young man is showing you, is showing you just what it means to be a strong person. I can never compete with that. If I lost either of my parents, I would be a complete and total wreck. If I lost both my parents, I'd be an even more complete wreck. And if I dealt with testicular cancer, it would be game over for me. He's not even out of college and he went through all three in a year. And he still wants to play football. I I, I, I cannot... What is there left to say about that young man? What is there left to say about someone who is willing to who goes through all of that and still wants to put a uniform on every Saturday? Just remember that each and every week this year that he is still out there after all of that that he still wants to pull that uniform on. I I don't know what else to say about it other than he's just the most remarkable has the most remarkable attitude I've ever seen in an athlete to face all that adversity and to still play extraordinary absolutely extraordinary we'll get to a happier note dunderhead of the week ask michael anything wrap up the show coming up next here on the Cook center Hour. Dunderhead of the Week time, brought to you by Olympic Doping. <laughs> Yulia Efimova, a swimmer for Russia, had been caught uh, with an illegal substance in her system and then was still allowed to swim. And Lily King, a swimmer for the United States, didn't really like it when she finger wagged uh, after a race, wagged her finger back there, and then. Threw some shade at her after, I think, the semifinal of... This was the 100 free. Uh, and she threw the finger back at her and said, Oh, yeah, well, you know... You know, I think if you've doped, you shouldn't be in the Olympics. And, you know, all that good jazz. And so, I, I was... I You know, you can't really... You know... You can't really, you know, finger wag if you've been in the Olympics. And then, if you're going to do that, you kind of have to be... You kind of got to win, right? I mean, you, you kind of got to win in the 100-meter breaststroke. That's what it was. Lily King went ahead and just kicked her ass on, what is that, like earlier this week in that race, and then continued talking about her. But she said afterwards, uh, a day later, oh, I thought the Cold War was over. No, FMOVA. You don't get to wag your finger at anybody and then go out there and let the woman who talked back to you about, you know, you can't be doping and in the Olympics, you don't get to get got caught with an illegal substance in your system and finger-wagging anybody and then get your ass kicked in the gold medal race or in the medal race. You don't get to do that. I mean, you, you can't have... You can't be in a country with basically what's at state-sponsored doping for all of its Olympic athletes and their entire Paralympic team has been banned from the Paralympics... You can't come from that spot, finger wag, and then when Lily King gives you a little rebuff about how you shouldn't be allowed to be in the race, and then you go out and get your butt kicked afterwards, you see that? Did anybody watch that live? The glare Lily King gave her before that race, too? Oh, it was extraordinary. And Lily King's like, what, 18, 19 years old? 
I think I'm finally getting to the point in my life at 28 where now I'm like, I'm looking at these athletes and I'm like, yeah, well, I did an extra five minutes on the elliptical at the gym today, so, you know, I guess, I guess you could say me losing weight's pretty serious now, you know. Yulia Efimova, Dunderhead of the Week. Don't come at the flag. Don't come at Uncle Sam. Don't come at me. Ask Michael anything time. Ask Michael anything. Start off with a pretty good one from Jason A. Churchill. What are your feelings about the QB situation at Stanford and Oregon? Also, how awesome is Luke Falk? Well, Luke Falk is like super mega duper fantastical awesome. Man, it's just, you know, Luke Falk. Guy sounds like Steve Holt. Anybody else like Arrested Development? Okay. Um, I, I don't know if Dakota Prukop is going to be as good, you know, he's not going to be as good as Vernon Adams, I don't think, and so, but probably better than Taylor Alley, and at Stanford, I just try, I don't know, I actually don't even know who is back there for Stanford behind Kevin Hogan, but I just trust J David Shaw to pull something out of his butt, because until he doesn't, I'm going to keep believing him. At Mr. Tommy G-Man, Tom Gilanella, you can only have one, Sean O'Malley or Willie Bloomquist. Give me Sean O'Malley, I don't care about the kid from Port Orchard, Sean O'Malley is like, he hit a more clutch home run than Willie Bloomquist has ever done. And Willie Bloomquist played for the Mariners for like 30 years. So, I'll, I'll take Sean O'Malley. At Jordan T. Pope. Jordan Pope, pizza or burrito? <sighs> Our own PJ Kendall brings up a good point. The pizza is reheatable, thusly better than a burrito. But, man, oh my god. Oh, oh. Can I have a, a pizza burrito would be a cop-out. Me saying pizza burrito would be a cop-out, right? <sighs> burrito. I'd go with a burrito. I, I don't know why. I, I I just crave burrito flavors like, you know, like uh, freaking, uh, like at Taco Mar. I crave those more often. I don't know why. I just don't know why. At Brett Gleason, pizza bagel bites versus hot pockets. Pizza bagel bites, because you're not going to get, like, you know, cold in the center like you do with pizza pockets sometime, or, like, melt your mouth and burn it until all eternity and 19th degree burns on the inside of your mouth like you can do with a hot pocket. That's my favorite. Jim Gaffigan's bit on that is one of the best in comedy. Hot pocket! Diarrhea pocket! <laughs> you got to go with the bagel bites. It's just easier to, you know, get them more evenly cooked. The uh, microwave using Savant can do it a little easier. I don't know. More Kook Center Hour next week. We're going to try to get the fellas together for a little panel on helping freshmen adjust to Washington State as they start school a week from Monday. Back on the Palouse. We'll see you next week on the Kook Center Hour. <laughs>